0: Okay, well, tonight um, we're going we're gonna to get into uh, being doers of the word. I know Ryan spoke about uh, Mark 8, I think, last week, and uh, being loved as Jesus is loved. <clears throat> so tonight I want to get into being doers of the word. And I, I'm going to probably tie it into a little bit of what the vision for SLM is, be, partially because it's, it's worth hearing here. Um, and then two, we're going to be talking with uh, the leaders. We're going to be looking at what what are we really doing with SLM? Is it just are we just hanging out, or or what is it about for real? Uh, what's the purpose? And so while we're talking about doers of the word here um, this evening, it may kind of lead into that. And uh, so I guess we'll just see as we go. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us um, in that which is written, and that you speak to us by your spirit, through circumstance, through your voice, even in dreams and in visions. And so, Father, we, we ask you to continue to speak to us as we know you have been, but also cause our eyes and ears to be opened. Cause our minds to be aware that you are looking and desiring to interact with us and uh, be in relationship with us and lead us into the paths of your commands. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. So we have a kind of thing here, a policy, I guess, uh, that we, we believe that if it's in the Bible, then it's both for me and available to me uh, to be able to, to live. And both experience and act out upon. So if it's in the scripture, uh, I'm not simply able to just believe the Bible. I also have an obligation and a privilege to live the Bible. And so that's kind of one of our tenets, I guess you could say, is that if, if you can find it in scripture, then it's available for you to have personally, and also um, that, that it's available for you to live. So as you go through things in Scripture and you see things that maybe have not been um, your experience or our experience, it's appropriate that we should press toward God in seeking that and wanting to see Him manifest Himself in the earth in that way. So James 1.19. There's an extra one in there. It slipped by me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Uh, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He's like a man who intently looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. First off, it's it's really interesting to me that he makes a very um, <clears throat> straightforward statement in verse twenty-two that to be a hearer of the word and not obey it is to lead oneself into deception, and it's it's extremely clear. So there's no there there's no two ways to examine that passage. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, <clears throat> there's an enormous danger in being in church all the time and not changing the way we live based on what we hear. You can look at it that way. There's a tremendous danger of being in the Scripture daily, and yet it doesn't change the way we live after we close the book. Because it's dangerous, because when we read and don't obey or change the way we live, or when we sit under teaching and we hear and we don't obey and change the way we live, we're actually leading ourselves and moving ourselves into deception. We're deceiving ourselves. And the more we deceive ourselves, the more difficult it is to find the truth and to actually be able to hear. Many Christians, in fact, begin deceiving themselves in an effort to strengthen their faith. So if Christianity is about what I believe and I start to study the Scripture and I find things in there that I'm not doing but I just want to know what I'm supposed to believe, I start to lead myself into deception. So I may be a master at the tenets of the faith, and I may be a a master um, of divinity and understand doctrine in, out, up, and down, and yet I'm completely in deception because I'm not living out even the most simplistic elements of my Christian faith. It's somewhat frightening. This was the group that Jesus confronted in the New Testament uh, of the, what we look at as the scribes and Pharisees. These were well-meaning, well-intentioned people who were trying to learn more of the Scripture. Some of them were genuine and became followers of Jesus. And others were so deeply deceived that they could not find their way out. Their hearts had become hard, as we'll, we'll see in Hebrews 3 as we'll get into it a little bit later, about strengthening our faith. So, because there is such a great danger, the burden falls upon us to immediately respond and act upon anything that we come across in Scripture that we're not currently doing. So if I'm reading the Scripture and I find something in there that isn't in alignment with my life, the Scripture's not going to change. I know some in some churches we just do that. We just tear that part out and you know we don't pay attention to that book anymore if it wasn't in red letters. But really, you can't do that. So when we come across something in Scripture that isn't in alignment with my life, my life has to change or I begin to deceive myself or continue to deceive myself. So we must immediately change. This is what repentance is. This is where it comes alive that I've been doing something wrong. I acknowledge that, and now I'm going to shift the course of my life and go in an opposite direction. Confess the wrong, do the right, change direction. It's repentance. So I I know, at least for me, there are passages of Scripture, you know, books in the Bible. It takes me like six months to get through two chapters because there's so much in there that you, you feel like I can't wade through anymore before I go and make some phone calls and repent to some people because I've done some things wrong. So we can't just cruise through Scripture for the sake of memorizing and learning and understanding what we believed. It's there because it's meant to be lived. It's supposed to be our experience. To do otherwise is to do as the Israelites did in the desert. Hebrews 3.7 says, I'm going to read a passage here. These were people that had seen the miracles of God. They had been delivered out of Egypt, and yet they were destroyed in the wilderness because they would not respond when they heard his voice. This is a religious people. This is a group who was going along with Moses' leadership, and yet it was not in their hearts to obey God, and so he let them perish in the wilderness. They heard the voice of God, yet they did not obey. They hardened their hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin, and they were destroyed because of their unbelief. A lack of action upon hearing of the word is equated to unbelief. This is something that I will suggest, recommend, whatever, but when you're in a service and the Lord is moving on your heart, and you're feeling things come up, and you can tell that God's wanting to deal with something or uh, touch you or respond. Do, Do something to obey to this. To sit and resist this prodding, this movement of the Spirit, is to intentionally harden our hearts and say, no, God, I'm not going there. I'm not willing to do this. And usually what I tell people is, find someone to pray with you. Either go to the front of a church. I don't care where you are. Go to the front and ask someone to pray with you. Find someone that you know and ask them to pray with you. But respond. Act upon it when you feel God speaking to your heart. So when you see you know, they heard the voice of God yet did not obey. This could be anything. This could be something you read in scripture. This could be, I came across a verse and I was like, oh my goodness, I do not, I am not treating my wife like that. I need to repent. I need to apologize to her. I probably need to call Pastor Tuttle and confess to him and have him pray for me. But I need to respond and do something differently. I can't just read it and go, okay, God, we'll take care of that when we get home. Today, he emphasizes this twice. He says, "Today it says, "Do not harden your hearts as they did in a rebellion." In other words, act now. Don't do not put God off and be like, "You know what, Lord? let's, uh, let's just wait till I get out to the car, and then once we're you know, halfway around the island, then we can look at this again, and I'll, I'll, because I know I'm going to fall apart, and I just don't want other people to see me fall apart. This is a part of obedience. There is a cost to following God, and at times, people are going to see God moving on us. There's a cost that goes along with it. There's also a reward that drastically outweighs the cost. However, it's not okay to hide from God when he's trying to speak to us and he's trying to interact with us. In fact, it's extremely dangerous. Dangerous, yes, it is dangerous. We're in England. Um... And it's very dangerous because it's leading ourselves into deception. And as we lead ourselves into deception, our hearts become hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin. And as our hearts become hardened, it becomes more and more difficult to hear the voice of God, let alone respond to it once we've heard it. And when our hearts have become hardened, we're going to go through a wilderness or even a destruction time where hopefully we're not utterly ruined and perish but that we're just ruined and we start over from scratch. Repentance can become a really nice thing. You know, at first it's like, man, this is so painful because I'm I'm having to tell God that I'm messing up over and over and over again and sometimes other people. And then somehow it becomes a comfort knowing that my good standing isn't dependent on my good performance and that it's okay when God comes to me and he he reveals something that I'm doing that's out of alignment with him I'm okay being able to say I've made mistakes I'm sorry about this and it doesn't shake my standing in fact true leadership and solidity of faith is because we're willing to have things exposed to us where we've erred we acknowledge them and move past them in repentance a lack of action upon hearing of the word is equated to unbelief. That's frightening. Because to believe, I'm using quotations with my fingers if you guys aren't looking, to believe Christian doctrines and not act upon them is considered unbelief and leads to destruction. So to have all of our doctrines in line, to know the right thing about salvation jesus is a part of the godhead the holy spirit we know all of our doctrines we've got all of them in a row we know exactly what we believe why we believe it we know creation arguments from a to z from alpha to omega beginning to end we got the whole thing down and yet when god shows us something we don't respond we're functioning in unbelief and that's what's destroyed God would rather have someone who has no doctrinal training, doesn't even know the beginning tenets of the faith, and yet when they are stirred by him, they respond immediately in repentance and change the way they live. This is great news because what's happening in our midst at this time are people who have no church background. We had a young man here a couple of years back who asked us what Jesus was. He had no clue. There are people in our midst, in our communities, that have no doctrinal, biblical, spiritual background whatsoever. And yet, when the presence of God is coming on them, they're changing the way they live immediately. And every time he speaks to them and shows them something new, they head in a new direction. That's faith. And yet, at times, churches are filled with people who know every doctrine and God will show them one thing about needing to repent and they resist it and they're led into deeper unbelief because of the deceitfulness of sin, which is going to ultimately lead to destruction. Verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, But a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the upside. So he's warned us over and over about why we can't not respond when God speaks. It will lead to our destruction. And he spends a lot of time, well, he figures one verse is sufficient here, evidently. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And I found it kind of strange that he would just so quickly breeze over that, so I I did a little bit of research. This person will be supremely blessed well off in his existence. So in English, it, it kind of translates into blessed in his doing, but what Scripture says is when we obey God, it's our existence, it's our being that is supremely blessed, that That's where that perpetual budding of life comes from our existence because we've obeyed. First, we discover that hearing and failing to act upon what we've heard leads to deception, then unbelief, then destruction. Secondly, we discover that hearing and acting leads us to be supremely blessed in our existence. It's important to note that our existence is tied to our obedience and considered a whole. So when the writer is, is writing this and he's talking about being supremely blessed because we've acted, he's saying you're blessed in your existence but you're doing what God's told you to do is a part of your existence. They're inseparable. So it's not like, hey, I'm a child of God just because I am and then here's the obedient people and they're the legalists over there but I'm just happy because I am and I'm supremely blessed over here. He unites obedience to our existence, and says these two are inseparable if you want to walk in the permanent, perpetual, budding blessing of God. So it's not biblical to say that we can walk in the supreme blessing of God and walk in disobedience to God. It is unbiblical. Luke six forty-six why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I told you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, and he laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. We know the alternative. I'm not going to read it. Hebrews 3 covered a lot. Remember, guys, it's destruction. That's what happens if we hear and do not obey destruction. Same thing, Hebrews 3, as in Luke 6. This one, though, I really want to take a look at. Doing the word of God or obeying equates to the construction of a foundation of a house. Jesus says that the one who hears my words and does them is like the one... Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, and the house could not shake it because it had been well built. Our lives are being constructed through our obedience. That's what this is about. Building her house on the sand by not listening to her mommy. (laughs) Our lives are being equated to the building of a house. Our obedience is the equivalent of digging deep and laying a foundation on a rock. But our obedience is the laying of our own foundation. It's laying a foundation that's unshakable in any storm. Obedience to the word of God builds our testimony, and it is our testimony that makes us unshakable. Re- Revelation twelve eleven, The saints triumphed over him, that is, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The saints overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What is our testimony? Our testimony is our story as we walk with God. It's our obedience to God. Our testimony is our story. Our testimony doesn't end when we get saved. Right? It shouldn't. My goodness. But... A lot of times, you know, that's the thing. We'll have a church service and we have testimonies. And everybody stands up there and they share about how God worked in their lives when they were a sinner to get them saved. And then the testimony stops once they were converted. And that's the end of the testimony. Well, that's that's not true. Our testimony is just beginning when we're born of God. We, we become aware of it often just before we're converted and born of the Spirit because we're like, hey, this is weird. My whole life is being flushed down the toilet. And someone seems to be doing someone this to me. And we figure out, hey, it's God. He's trying to get my attention. Then he reveals himself to us as a kind and loving Father, merciful. He forgives us, forgives us of our sin. We're born of God, and we're like, whoa, this is amazing. Well, that's the beginning. Our testimony lasts forever. Our testimony is our walk with God in obedience to him. So does our testimony that makes us unshakable. It's by our testimony in the blood of the Lamb that we overcome the devil. And it's also our testimony, our foundation, that makes us unshakable in the storms of life. Our testimony is our weapon against discouragement and leads us into victory. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're talking about testimony here and obeying and responding when God speaks, Right? Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. So here's the context of Hebrews 12. This is right after the text where he describes the heroes of the faith. Those who accomplished the greatest works of the kingdom up till this day are listed in Hebrews 11. Remember, there were no chapter breaks when it was written. But the previous text is leading up about all these great feats that were accomplished by those who, Who walked in faith? What's faith? Obedience, right? Remember, disobedience, unbelief. They're equated. So, obedience is an act of faith. Hebrews 11 describes the lives of those who acted in faith. They're the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Immediately thereafter, he tells us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles, which is a command that needs to be obeyed, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What does an author do? This is not a trick question. He writes the story. <laughs> yes, I have some Smarties. You have no idea how precious those are to me, too. I ate 12 of those packages on Sunday. I love Smarties. What does an author do? He writes a story. If he's the author of our faith, he's writing the story of our faith. If our faith is equated to our obedience, he's writing the commands that he expects us to obey. He is the author of our story. He's the author of our faith. He's the author of those things which we must act upon in obedience to him as he stirs our hearts. Stirring of our hearts can happen in a church service when some guy gets up that you've never heard before and he starts speaking things and you feel like he's talking directly to you. That's that's God trying to speak to you. It could be when you're sitting in a church service and you're reading the hymnal because you don't want to listen to the sermon. And the things that were written by Charles Wesley hundreds of years ago are speaking directly to your heart. That's God speaking to you. It could be when you get up in the morning to read your devotional and you decide, I'm going to start in Judges 18 and it starts completely, wow, whoa. It's like this thing's jumping off the page at me. It could be in a dream, like Joseph in Scripture. you got to move, buddy. Time to get cracking. Those are the things that God is writing for us, about us, that we have to act upon. There's a song, I think it's uh, Corey Asbury, where it's, uh, he's, talk, he's singing, you know, I don't want to write my own story. And, um, and uh, it's, you know, catch me up in your story. And the heart of it is, it's being sung as, I want to know that I'm a part of the eternal story of God's redemptive purposes for mankind. I want to know that my life means more than some guy living in some little remote town in some little podunk part of some medium-sized state for 80 years, 90 years. I want to know that I'm a part of something that's bigger than just what I can do and what I can engineer in my own. I want to know that I'm a part of the eternal story of God's redemption of mankind. I want to know I'm a part of that. I want to know that He's writing my story. I want to know that He is going to perfect my story as I stay obedient to Him. I want to know that I'm not responsible to write my own story, to make all the right decisions. All I'm responsible to do is respond to Him when He speaks to me and moves on my heart and stirs me. I have one responsibility, and that is to be 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 prepared to obey God when he moves on my heart. It's not my responsibility to know where he's going to take me in 20 years. It's not my responsibility to be able to tell other people, this is what we're going to be 20 years from now, because I don't know it's not my story. I can tell you what his story is and what he showed us about his story, and even different little pieces of how we might fit into it, but it's not my story, so I can't tell you. All I can tell you is what he's shown about his story. And what matters most is I want to know that my life is not being written by me, it's not being written for me, and it's not being perfected by me. I want to know that he's responsible to write it. He's responsible to get me there, and he's responsible to make it perfect when we reach the completion. How do I learn this? Obedience. The only way you can learn this. I, this is funny, it's ironical, I have to obey him when I disagree with him to see that he is the author of my story and not me. Think about this for a second. If I'm always right, and I'm never having to do something that I feel like isn't right God's like hey I want you to go in this direction and I'm like I don't feel like it I feel like going this way and I do what I want to do then I'm writing my own story and if we never come to a point where he's like I want you to go here and you're like I don't want to go there I want to go here and I don't act then I'll never find out if he was actually writing my story or if it's been me all along I find out that he's the author of my story when he takes me in a direction, I didn't think I would go, and I didn't maybe want to go. Now, if, you, if you're if you able to release your will and say, God, I'll go wherever you go, and he's able to take you places that you didn't plan on, then yes, he is writing the story, even if you aren't disagreeing with him, and bless you if that's you. Um, it wasn't me. I had to find out through doing the things that I didn't want to do, in spite of the fact I didn't want to do, that... It was him who's writing my story, not me. So I must obey him when I disagree with him to see that he is the author of my story, not me. We often discover that God is authoring. He's penning our story by looking backwards. Often we discover that he has been leading us through hindsight. And as we look back at what he's done and how he's led us, even against our will, and we see, Wow, you were faithful you really did know what you were doing. I thought you knew 10% more than me. I guess it's 20. Huh. Uh, It was a joke, Micah. It was just a joke. It's at least 22, I mean, percent. But we find out through looking backwards and saying, I would never have picked this, but wow, I'm glad I didn't listen to me. And that increases our faith looking forward, so then we maybe don't have to live looking backward. We can be confident looking forward, knowing the next time he speaks to me and I obey him, I'm going to act upon it because I already know that he's writing my story. I must obey him when I disagree with him to see that he is the author of my story and not me. This is why false freedom is so destructive. Because it leads people to believe that if they do whatever they feel like and they're passionate about, that they'll accomplish God's purposes for them. That's simply not biblical. It isn't doing what we feel like, but doing what he feels like that will lead us into the accomplishment of his purposes. This is a a little pointer that's helpful um, in regard to this try to view your life as though you're reading a story written by the author of your own faith. Because often we get so caught up in the season that we're in and the moment that we're in and it's so hard or painful or, you know, miserable that all you can see is what's immediately in front of you. And you Forget that if you back off just a little bit, you can see the greater work of what he's doing in you. If you back off a little bit more, suddenly you're looking at your life in the scope of 20 to 40 years, and you realize this is a season I'm in. Maybe it's discipline. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's joy and glory and excitement and anticipation, whatever it is. But stepping back to look at your life in the context, it's a story that's being written in, to the redemptive purposes of mankind that was started before the foundations of the earth. Now, at the beginning, admittedly, it can be really difficult (laughs) because uh, we've got to learn to step away and observe what God has been working in our lives. It can also be difficult if you don't remember having God ever really speak to you or orchestrate anything in your life that you knew was God. So at the beginning of our walk with God, it can be really tough, because you're like, I think he did one thing for me, and that's why I became a Christian. And it's okay to ask God to show you himself and his workings in your life. And it's also okay to be attentive to the things that he's orchestrating circumstantially. He's constantly at work in our lives, but often we fail to observe the happens, happenings of our life as the hand of God. We're too quick to throw things off as circumstantial. It's coincidental. God will meet you. He will orchestrate your life. But you must welcome his authorship and his leadership. And then we must obey Him. So, when you ask God, God, you have to meet me. Show me that you are at work in my life. Show me that you're orchestrating circumstances. Show me that you're trying to speak to me. You're committing yourself to the obligation to obey Him when He shows up. It's not just for an experience. It's not just for a good feeling and an encounter and a story. It's for the sake of drawing us into what he's doing and committing ourselves to respond when he shows us, hey, this is me, I'm at work in your life. Oh good, twenty minutes, I got time for this one. So uh Mary and I had just met in two thousand five, and um we were praying uh at her house. We had walked all around town one night. We'd known each other for all of probably two weeks, and um we're praying at her house and uh, I was about to leave, and so we're praying in the living room. And we prayed, God, if this was you, you know, and, and you're wanting this relationship to go forward, give us an opportunity to minister to someone together. You know, that's be, that'd be a good prayer, right? And so, God, give us an opportunity to minister to someone together as a couple, you know, because, like, I can minister over here, she can minister over here, but we want an opportunity together. And this was about 2 a.m., And then I left, and I drove all the way to Republic, I got up early the next morning, came out, this was a Saturday night, this was after Immersed, come all the way back into church. I'm here at church Sunday morning, and Mary's late, which at the time was a surprise to me, Um, eight years later, not so much. Actually, we're really close to eight years to the date that this actually happened. Yeah, wow, that's funny, it's a day after Halloween. So... I'm here. No, Mary. This is weird. All of a sudden, 15 minutes after worship starts, she comes in. She's like, I need you. So I go outside and standing in the parking lot of a church is a lady um, dressed in a wedding dress with gym shorts on. Dirty gym shorts and a wedding dress. Hairs freaked out. How do I? Had a broom that she stole, was smoking a cigarette, and I'm like, My dear lord. And so I come back in here and I grab Pastor Tuttle and I'm like, I need you. And so he comes out and he's like, You're an idiot. And we go out into the parking lot and we're talking to this, hey, who are you? And says her name, and she's kind of, yeah, you know, I'm so-and-so, and what's your name? And he goes, I'm I'm John. And she goes, Oh. John, I know you, John. And she starts speaking like a man. She starts cursing him out. And I'm like, my dear Lord, this person is possessed of the devil. <laughs> that was a fly. I got him. So, this person goes from being a female to a male in an instant. I know you, John. And I'm like, holy schlamoley. And I'm like, we're going to need to do a deliverance in the parking lot. Well, much to my surprise, pastor looks at me, pats me on the back, goes, yep, you can drive her home. <laughs> okay. So, where are you going? Ishpeming. Oh, good. <laughs> Saddle up, partner. So, we jump in the dodge ram so it's me, Mary, and this person on the other side and we start driving and i'm like okay, what do i do? i've been to some charismatic prayer meetings. i think i got a pretty good handle on this. and so she starts like crying and she's going through all this stuff and i'm like i didn't really know anything else so i i just started commanding in jesus name this thing to stop torturing her. and she would go from sobbing to in a monotone and i'm just like and i would go in jesus name stop it and she would start sobbing as a girl and then she'd go back to this other thing and sobbing as a girl and it's like back and forth i'm like in jesus name stop it and they would stop and then she would start crying again like a girl and all of a sudden and this goes on like the whole trip to Ishmael. and at one point, we're coming into Ishmael, and I was like, do you want this to go away permanently? I was like, we can command this in Jesus' name, and it will leave you permanently. She goes, no. She said, I don't know how I'd live without it. It's always been this way. And we we're like, okay. So we dropped her off, and that was the last time I saw her. Mary's seen her a couple other times. And we're driving back, and I'm like, hey. Hey. Six hours ago, we prayed and asked God for an opportunity to minister together. I think we just got it. And so this is a long, random story. To say that when we're looking at beyond more than just this crazy, weird experience, no, God was responding to our request to say, hey, are you acting in our lives? Are you blessing where we're going are you leading in the direction we think you're leading? We need to have something market. So it's a, it's a really kind of neat story and all this. But more than that, it's stepping back in a way and able to look out and say, God is moving and orchestrating things in our life. This, this lady came flying out of Third Street Bagel while Mary was walking down Third Street, screaming at her, flagging her down because they had uh, worked together at one point. And so you look and you go, okay, Lord, you are at work here. You're acting in my life. You're orchestrating the events of my life. Now, how do we respond in obedience when he shows us, yes, it is me? When John the Baptist was asked who he was and if he was the Messiah, his response was, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John one twenty three. he replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This passage was written about 700 years before John was born. John found himself in God's story. Now, we're 2,000 years later, and we look back and we go, well, of course he did. He's John the Baptist in the Bible. John was some dude from some little town who had been set apart, consecrated from birth to obey God. John was written in to the New Testament because John responded in obedience to God's call in his life. John wasn't in the New Testament when we read the New Testament. There was no New Testament. That's that's kind of a joke. That's a point. I got it. (laughs) There was no New Testament when this happened. When John quoted a scripture from 700 years earlier, there was no New Testament that he was reciting. He wasn't looking at his own life in the New Testament. He's looking back 700 years and saying, This is me. I'm in the book. John found himself in God's story. He allowed God to show him, this is who you are. This is where you fit in my redemptive purposes for mankind. You get to be the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John, in return, was called by Jesus the greatest man born of woman. Then he follows that and he says, But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's us. We've been given a greater privilege than John. We're in the story. So our response has to be to look, to listen, to see what God is writing about us and how we fit into his story. When we do, we listen and look to obey his word as we study it. To establish ourselves as houses built upon the rock, unshakable in any storm. We have to be responsive to his voice when he speaks. And as we do, we look at our own lives in the context that it's, it's a strand being woven into God's script throughout the ages. As we live in obedience and we are doers of his word and not just hearers, we become overcomers and we'll hear on the day of the Lord, Well done, good and faithful servant. So I want to share just a little bit for a couple of minutes what what we're doing with with s l m and what we believe it is. Um, we believe that as Christians you know the the very base level of Christianity is to love God and love people, and that's like elementary Christianity, it's one one um, to love God and then love others and to, to you know to be an encounter um for other people of the Spirit of God and you know like Jesus did healing the sick and praying for folks and telling them about the Lord and, and that's Christianity 101 and but we believe that there's more to it for us in regard to your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we believe that as Christians we've been given authority to actually influence and shape the culture to have effect on how people think and therefore act, and therefore live their lives. So, more than just give someone an experience, we want to affect the way people think, and the way that they live, and the way that they ultimately end up worshipping. Because they're either worshipping God, or they're worshipping the devil. There's only two options. So, we believe that as a Christian people, the people of God, Our call is to affect the culture and to bring the ways of the kingdom of God into life, into experience, and throughout our communities and our cultures, in our cities, in our states, in our nations. So we believe that that's what our calls ultimately are as Christians. Now, that said... We also understand that as Christians, developmentally, we go through many phases of uh, maturation, so to speak, where we're growing, and we're maturing, and we're becoming able to handle more. So I say that to say that uh, a young man who maybe is just being freed from a, a lust addiction is probably not going to be going and ministering at a, at a pornography conde- convention, though other men are going and ministering at these kind of conventions and seeing people in the pornography industry radically saved and come to Jesus, and it's amazing. But not every young man is ready to step into that from the moment they're born of God. They, we grow and we mature and we're able to take on more. And so we're aware that though we, we become and we grow into a people that will affect change in our culture and will influence our culture and will shape our culture according to the ways of the kingdom, we also understand that we mature into effective cultural influencers. And so SLM is designed not just for you guys to come and, you know, listen to some schmo in a suit. Um, it's not designed just to have small group get-togethers where we hang out and we drink you know, espresso at the local coffee shop, which is great anyway, um, should you choose to do so. It's not just some kind of get-together. It is for the purpose of giving a support system for the development, the growth, and the maturation of Christians becoming leaders, first becoming established as godly people, then becoming established as godly leaders, and then becoming established as influencers in their culture, in their community, not just in their individual lives. And so, SLM, the design of it, is to assist in your becoming established in, as an individual and then helping to train you as to how to lead. Leadership is influence, it's influence, it's persuasion, the good kind of persuasion. When you lead, you're persuading people to embrace that which you hold to, your vision. When our vision is the kingdom, our persuasion is very, very good. Persuasion can be looked at very negatively, and so I'm defining it as a positive thing. So we seek to become established as Christian individuals. We seek to train the attributes of influence or leadership. And as those attributes are developed, honed, and shaped, we're there to support as you become someone who's now doing it in a secular environment. It's one thing to affect change and be an influencer when you have willing Christians who are going along with the things that you say and the things that you say they should do. It's another thing entirely when you're trying to affect change in an environment that's hostile to what you're saying and what you believe and why you believe it, and to continue to do it for year after year after year. SLM does not have a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year program. It's not like that. This is a long-term partnership where we believe we're all going to grow together for a long, long time. I believe that if we're going to affect change in our culture, we have a 20-year minimum effectiveness period. When I've done research on uh, William Wilberforce, who actually did change his culture, 40 years 40 years, a group of people like this partnered together and said, we're going to go after this thing together. We're not just going to go after the abolition of slavery. We're going to change our culture and make it like the kingdom of God. They didn't sign up for a one-year term. This was lifelong, however long it took, and it took them 40 years. They lived together. They broke bread together. They actually built four adjoining houses together and used it to host social events where they brought in (gasps) non-Christians to their events and spent time with them, and influenced them, and changed the way people thought, and they changed the way England thought, and they ultimately changed the way the rest of us think even today. It's a long-term thing. It's, it's more than just a few people hanging out. It's a group of us who are saying, we're going to grow together. Some of you may be here for a year, some of you may be here for 25 years. That's up to you and what you hear God speaking to you about your story that he's writing. What I'm telling you is our goal for each of us in SLM is to aid in the development, the growth, and the maturing process to help you go from someone who is maybe uncertain about your faith into the place where you're established and you know who you are in God. And if that's you today, to help you become a leader and an influencer of people. And as you become an influencer of Christians, we want to help you become an influencer and a cultural changer in a hostile, secular environment where you can go out and see the things of the kingdom implemented where you are in our, in our community. That's the, that's the goal, that's the vision that we have, that we're a part of with SLM. And I felt like it was a good night to share that with you as we're talking about being uh, obedient and being doers of the word, is we do believe that each of us are written into the redemptive story that God's writing on behalf of mankind that each of us are in the book, so to speak. That he's speaking to each of us about where we fit and where he's taking us and where he wants us to go. And so SLM is simply designed as a support system to help get you there, where you have people to develop relationships with who have a long-term vision of wanting to affect change in their culture, and we're going to be here doing it together for a long time. So amen. I'll pray, and then uh, then we can go. Father, thank you uh, for choosing us. Father, thank you for writing our story. Thank you for not letting us have our way. Thank you for being more stubborn than we are. Thank you for leaning on us to the point that we are going to break, that we might relent and do as you would have us, that we might enjoy the great blessedness in all of our doings as we walk in your path. Father, I ask for each of us here that we would see more clearly than we've ever seen how we fit in your story what it is that you're orchestrating through the course of our life, that we are here for a purpose that goes far beyond anything that we've known thus far. Reveal to us, Lord, not only the future, but also the past and your handiwork in it, and your kindness to us in our own lives. And then, Lord, show us the future. Cause us to see things about where you're leading us that burn in our hearts and give us a grace and a courage to obey. We love you, Father. We love you. Amen. Amen.